And we read in Acts 28, verses 1 through 10, this. After we were brought safely through the storm, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And when the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that his father lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Excuse me. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thank you. Okay. The storm, the storm that pushed Paul to the island of Malta might have been unexpected to the Roman sailors conveying prisoners like Paul to Rome, but the current that carried them came from far beyond the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. Ever since Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, Paul's life had been consumed by one goal. He had been tirelessly working to fulfill the dynamic and comprehensive promise of the resurrection, which was the establishment of God's new kingdom in this broken world. For Paul, Jesus rising from the dead changed everything. God had broken down the barrier that separated humanity from himself and entered our world in a way that had never happened before. The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that created the world and led the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness with fire and wind, who spoke to the prophets to his people lost in exile, had been let loose into the world. For the early church, God was remaking what sin had broken long ago both inside the human soul and even in the world itself. Uh, C.S. Lewis frames the resurrection like this. He writes, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the prisoner, uh, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. 
For Paul, this new reality meant that even when the boat carrying him to Rome, the place that Jesus commanded him to go in Acts 23, floundered at sea in a storm for two weeks and then eventually sank, God would still use him to declare good news of great joy no matter where he was. The kingdom of God had come and everything was about to be made new. On the island of Malta, the kingdom of God moves through Paul in three distinct ways. And they're fairly obvious to recognize. First is this. Paul experiences the ongoing grace of God and his deliverance from the shipwreck and his uh, initial welcome by the people on the island. Now, if you read Acts uh, 27, you can see that his ship had been struggling at sea for over two weeks. And there's a lot of conversations that happen between Paul and the sailors. The sailors are overwhelmed. They're stressed. They believe that they're going to die. But Paul has a vision uh, during this time that says, nope, everybody on this boat is going to survive. So his ship had been struggling at sea for over two weeks fighting a storm that pushed them onto the rocks off this island. They didn't know what the island was called. But even the name of the island, which means place of refuge or safety, hints that God is moving behind the scenes with grace and power. Despite their recent existence telling them that death was imminent, that it was crashing against the edge of the boat, that it was going to overcome them, Every passenger was still brought safely to shore. All of them were saved. Even more profound, however, was the kindness that these exhausted sailors experienced once the waves brought them to shore. Now, picture this image. Picture this moment. Staggering out of the ocean in the middle of the night, they met people who kindled a fire and welcomed them because it had begun to rain And was cold. Two weeks on a boat that was sinking. Struggling out of the ocean. And they met people who kindled a fire. Because it was raining and it was cold. In that moment Paul had done nothing to deserve the grace that these strangers showed them. The word used in Acts 28.2 to describe this kindness. Philanthropia means love towards other people. But especially those in need. It's used only twice in the New Testament. Um, Paul also uses this word in Titus uh, chapter 2 to describe God's enduring love for his children who are equally lost and helpless apart from him. For Paul, God loves us in a similar way, wandering in the darkness far from home. Our God invites us to sit with him by the fire so that we might warm up, so that our souls might Live again, not because we're worthy, but because he is kind and good. The salvation Paul experiences here points, however, to a deeper movement of God. Paul is being delivered from one part of the world to another for a purpose. And wherever he goes, the kingdom continues to take root. Second, The movement of the kingdom in our world shows how death loses its sting. In this case, kind of literally. Like other viper-like snakes, the ones in Malta uh, sort of go into this semi-hibernation in cold uh, weather. They sort of just kind of freeze up. They stay still. They're not, I don't know, they just kind of freeze up a little bit. 
When they're exposed to warmth, they wake up, they're a little bit cranky, they're very ready to strike whatever is around them. And so uh, when Paul throws a bit of wood onto the fire, one of those snakes wakes up and goes, this is not where I want to be, jumps out and fastens himself to his hand. Now, Paul was trying to serve these strangers who had been so kind by putting wood on the fire. But then he, uh, this happens. Having survived the shipwreck, but then encountering this deadly snake, the islanders assume that Paul must be a murderer experiencing divine justice. But in a dramatic shock to the islanders, Paul shakes the snake into the fire and doesn't collapse in agony or death. Now, I think it's interesting that it says that they wait to see what happens. I think that makes, like, I mean, everybody's looking at him around the fire like he's going to die soon, pretty sure. And I'm not sure if they took bets, but, you know, they were, they were pretty confident that this was the only result after being bitten by a snake like this. But he lived. He didn't die. Amazed, they declare instead that he must be a god as death appears unable to touch him. See, they apply this miracle to Paul instead of God, but they were correct in recognizing this moment points to a deeper spiritual reality. See, this uh, interaction between Paul and the snake fulfills uh, three prophecies about how God cancels the power of death in Jesus. The first prophecy uh, Paul embodies comes from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 3, when God curses the serpent in the garden. Oh, the children of Eve uh, might be condemned to die. They are also designed to one day crush the head of their ultimate antagonist, death itself. From the beginning, God promises to rescue his children from the penalty of sin. This promise is expanded in Isaiah eleven six 6-9, where God promises that one day in the kingdom he will establish... Death will lose its power forever. We read there that the wolf will lay down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Paul embodies both these visions of the kingdom on Malta, but he also fulfills the commission that Jesus gives his disciples in Mark 16 to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The signs that accompany those who follow the command to preach the gospel to, to every nation, to the ends of the earth, include the following. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Paul embodies these signs both in the supernatural disregard for the deadly things of this world, but also how he goes on to heal the sick and diseased people of Malta later. Finally, Paul fulfills the prophecy found in Hosea 13, 14, when the Lord says this, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your sting? Paul quotes this passage in 2 Corinthians 15, where he explains how death has lost its power in the resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul experiences this in a physical or tangible way on the island of Malta when he meets this snake. Third, Paul's continued imprisonment opens the door to bless the people of Malta. Throughout Acts, Paul is consistently uh, accused of being something he isn't. What's funny about this particular story is that it's a reversal of what happens to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. uh, They heal somebody uh, in Acts 14, and they're hailed as gods first, and then uh, later they're stoned by the same crowd. So instead of, you know, saying, oh gosh, this guy's... Anyway, switches. Uh, The Jewish leaders accuse him of heresy, The Roman authorities contemn him for rebellion and sedition. He is imprisoned and beaten, nearly dying on multiple occasions, including surviving this shipwreck and a bite from a venomous snake. Rather than despair over these continual abuses and hardships, Paul positions himself to be a vehicle of grace to anybody and everybody that he meets. The miracle of his preservation is another opportunity for God's goodness to shine through. It's another moment that Paul might walk through and talk about what Jesus has done for all of humanity. It's another door. It's an opportunity. Here on Malta, Paul and his friends are welcomed into the home of the chief Roman official on the island where they stay for about three days. Sometimes during that stay, Paul prays with this official's father who is sick and bed and heals his disease. Like happened often with Jesus in the Gospels, the rest of the sick on the island suddenly show up and say, will you please heal me too? And then Paul does that. Everybody on the island is cured. I can imagine some poor Roman doctor asking his secretary why his calendar is so blank. Like, where is everybody? And the reply is, well, everybody's healed. Everybody's been healed. They're all restored. They've been delivered. They're saved. Nobody is hurting anymore. Which, of course, is exactly what Paul wants people to understand. That in God's kingdom, there is restoration. There is healing. There is wholeness. The new kingdom that Jesus is creating, which Paul and every believer had been working to establish really does turn the world upside down. The people of Malta experience just a glimpse of this new reality with restored health and the eradication of their disease. Interestingly, however, we don't know what happens with these people once they experience this healing or even after Paul leaves the island three months later. We can safely assume that Paul shared the gospel with them. That's something Paul would not neglect that. But we don't hear of any mass conversions or even if the official and his father come to faith at all. Luke writes, Paul and his companions were shown generous hospitality by the Roman official. They were honored after the healings took place. When they left, their ship was filled with everything they needed. So they made some kind of difference. There was some kind of influence. We're not given any tangible, real information about the results of their work. Perhaps the entire island is converted at some point, but this ambiguity reveals an important point about the movement of God in our world and our own role in his plans. Sometimes, in the life of faith, maybe even most of the time, we don't really know the results of our efforts for the kingdom. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a man sowing seeds in a rather generous way. He just sort of is throwing these seeds everywhere. Some land in good soil, some land along the path, some on rocks, some in thorns. Any farmer who knows anything about planting will tell you this worker should probably be fired. Seeds should, not, seeds should always be planted in fertile soil where you know they can grow, not scattered haphazardly across the countryside. If anything, the sower in this parable might be considered reckless, even wasteful. Jesus, however, isn't talking about farming, but the growth of God's kingdom. Every believer is called to spread the good news of the gospel wherever and whenever we can. But God is the one who still makes faith grow. Often we don't know when or even if our declarations of God's goodness, our kindness that we show to other people, will turn a person toward salvation. Sometimes the seeds we scatter, don't, uh, they take not days but years to take root in a person's life. When it comes to the results of our efforts in the life of faith, this parable tells us to expect uncertainty. Paul and his friends model this expectation on Malta. Notice how they do this. They devote their time to blessing the people. They share the good news, but they also understand that God is going to be doing the rest because he's the one who's moving behind the scenes. At this point in his life, Paul understands that he is being carried along, not by his own efforts, but by the gracious activity and movement of a loving God who has only just begun to remake the world. The gospel was spreading like a mighty river. An ocean of mercy was descending upon this broken world. Swept off his feet, Paul recognized that every moment he drew breath was a moment that he could point to the goodness of God the Father, who is now moving in power through the Holy Spirit amongst men and women across the known world. Remember, the New Testament opens with John the Baptist announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. John sensed the kingdom was about to burst onto the scene, that it was just around the corner. But then Jesus arrived, and he died, and he rose again. And in his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus declares the kingdom has come. And the restorative work of the Spirit had begun. N.T. Wright explains Paul's uh, position on Malta like this. He says, The sea and the snake have done their worst and are overcome. New creation is happening and the powers of evil cannot stop it. Paul may arrive in Rome a more bedraggled figure than he would have liked, but the gospel which he brings is flourishing and nobody can stop it. The wonderful news this morning, church, is that we too are carried by the same current that carried Paul, that carried the early church and every believer since the resurrection of Jesus. God's kingdom is moving and we are a part of it. All of us are a part of it if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior. We each have something to do in God's wonderful movement of redemption. Paul's time in Malta reflects his place in the story of God's growing kingdom 
And it provides a model for us. Just like Paul, we too have received unexpected grace. In Jesus, we have experienced unusual kindness. And that actually might be an understatement when we talk about the grace we know and our Lord. Having been blessed, we are now free to become a blessing to others by declaring the good news and helping everybody we meet in tangible ways that embody the Spirit's activity in us and for us and through us. We too are caught up in this great spiritual wave that is still crashing over our world today. We, are, we too are called to extravagantly bless the world and the people around us. We are called to share the same unusual kindness that we know in Jesus today and tomorrow and every day for the rest of our lives. Because the kingdom of God is moving. It is still moving and is moving in people like you and me. Hallelujah. Amen.